Here it is. From deep inside your radio. Ladies and gentlemen, there's nothing worse than a bad idea unless it's a good idea gone wrong. I don't know about where you live, but um, in Southern California and in New Orleans, Louisiana, among other places, the old-style parking meters have been replaced by newfangled parking meters. The, the basic difference being that you can use your credit card to pay to park. The uh, other difference is that when you leave your space, there's a little uh, detector embedded into the pavement beneath your car that says, no car here anymore, and the meter immediately readjusts itself to zero. So the person after you can't benefit from your leftover time. But forget that. We know that. That's We've, we've absorbed that. We've assimilated that nasty little piece of, we want more money. But it seems so convenient. You don't have to carry a bunch of quarters anymore. You can just slide in your credit card and pay to park. What could be better? What a good idea. Until a couple days ago, I was availing myself of just such a convenience. Didn't have a quarter on me or near me. No quarter given or whatever. Slid in my credit card, preparing to uh, tell the meter how much time I wanted. But, you know, you slide in your credit card, and it's, it's supposed to hit this spot and stop. And then the hard-to-read little screen says, immediately pull out your card. You pull out your card, and then you select your uh, time, your duration. The credit card didn't stop. It went completely in. It was as if the parking meter was from some kind of really cheeseball horror movie. Feed me credit cards! Apparently I did. Never came back out. It didn't look like it had a stomach. Or enough room for a stomach. But somewhere in the innards of that parking meter is my credit card. Yes, it's a good idea gone wrong. Hello, welcome to the show.
the edge of America from the home of the homeless. I'm Harry Shearer welcoming you to this edition of the show. And now, ladies and gentlemen, news of bad banks. Bad bank. Well, leave it to the folks down under to get down under the culture of banking. Australia's corporate regulator is set to launch a crackdown on that country's banking culture. Yes, they sing Carmen in banks. I don't think that's what that means. Which the corporate regulator claims is encouraging misconduct and the fleecing of consumers. According to the Financial Times, the intervention by the Australian Securities and Investment Commission follows a series of banking scandals down under... And new research showing that a poor risk culture at financial institutions is allowing misconduct and Machiavellian tendencies to flourish. Quote, those affected by poor culture are usually those who can least afford it. That's uh, from the chairman of the Australian regulatory agency. When I talk about poor outcomes for customers, this is a polite way of saying people are getting fleeced. Or I guess he would have said it, fleeced. 
Australia's banking industry did not face the same level of scrutiny as many other jurisdictions following the crash in 2008 because the country didn't go into recession. So why look? The rug's, the rug's fine. But concerns are growing following a scandal over poor financial advice provided by one bank, Commonwealth Bank, which has since spread to other financial institutions. That is to say, institutions. The regulator is also investigating the alleged manipulation of the setting of Australia's bank or interbank benchmark borrowing rates, similar to the LIBOR rate, which was enmeshed in scandal. That was the rate for interbank borrowing in the United States and Europe. And the banks, many of the major banks, rigged it. Well, why take a chance? The uh, chief regulator told a parliamentary committee banks were behaving in, quote, an appalling way in relation to his investigation on interbank borrowing rates. The regulator was still trying to gain their cooperation. So far, the regulatory agency has accepted settlements for potential misconduct, mm, that's a new one, from UBS, BNP Paribas, and Royal Bank of Scotland, which have made donations in the million-dollar range to financial literacy programs in Australia. That's the problem. You're illiterate financially. Seven traders from the Australian New Zealand Bank, ANZ, have been forced to resign as the inquiry continues. The uh, regulator said it would step up its pursuit of financial institutions and it would use criminal sanctions when an individual breaches the law and it considers a company's culture is to blame. Wow. We could learn... No, they could learn from us. Deferred prosecution agreements, babe. Little fine. DPAs. Boom. You're good. Quote, we think that when an officer breaches a law... ASIC administers, ASIC is the name of the regulator, and culture is responsible, then the officers and the firm should be responsible. <sighs> wow. No wonder they got kangaroos. The Australian Banking Association said the industry supported reform, but there were limits to regulation. Really? Quote, the law is important, but insufficient to change culture said the Executive Director for Retail Banking Policy of the Banking Association. Culture can't be regulated. I'll remember that. New research by Macquarie University has found a worrying risk culture at Australia's banks. Middle management continues to overlook ethical breaches and misconduct. Senior executives often do not know what their staff is doing. Isn't that convenient? The uh, co-author of the research said there were problems with pay structure and performance measurement systems. Quote, these put people under huge pressure to perform and can push them to cross boundaries of acceptable behaviors, he said. A survey of 300 business units at five Australian financial institutions and three Canadian banks identified a culture whereby staff did not report misconduct, particularly when perpetrated by top performers. You may have seen, apropos, a survey of American bankers. Now, I'm not, I'm not a big fan of surveys, but this is pretty specific. A survey of um, people in the banking industry in the United States, most of whom would feel that it was okay to commit 
ethical transgressions and wouldn't feel it was okay to report the ethical transgressions of others, particularly their superiors. There's your culture. There's your culture of a bad bank. Now, ladies and gentlemen, let us try. The United States Army Corps of Engineers has a little problem with the new $14 billion risk reduction system that, at the urging of Congress, they provided for the New Orleans community after a little thing that happened 10 years ago. They built these levees and and other structures. The Corps likes to build static, hard, high structures, sometimes not high enough, but now not high enough because with the um, with the continued drainage of the New Orleans area. By the way, California is suffering subsidence too with the um, pulling out of groundwater during the during the drought. California is sinking, but back to New Orleans, it's sinking, and so the levees built on its land are sinking. They have to be lifted eventually in the near future, according to the New Orleans Levy Board, the new reformed professional levy board until Bobby Jindal decided to make it political again. But anyway, lifting the levy sections that have to be done would cost up to an estimated $37 million dollars which um, the local community will have to pay for because the Army Corps, when it builds something, says, here, it's yours. You take it over. None of the levy sections is now below the heights required to meet the system's standard of protecting against a 100-year storm. The levy authority wants to start early as a cost-saving measure, but the Army Corps of Engineers is preparing to spend about $34 million to armor the levees with synthetic matting. You know, like Donald Trump has on his head. And new turf, like Donald Trump has. A job that will reduce the risk of levee collapse from overtopping during storms larger than the 100-year level. Raising a levee after that job is done would mean removing and then replacing the matting and turf. And that would be at local expense. Which is why the levee board recommends lifting levee sections before armoring them. Arming the levees now and lifting them later would make the levees stronger sooner, but the levees would be just as weak when it comes time to remove the armor during the lifting process. Waiting to lift the levee sections until the Corps adds the armor would make the situation more dangerous. During the two or three years required to armor the levees, they will have sunk to even lower levels. When it came time to strip the armor and lift the levees, they would be both weak and short. You know, like like me. Since the Flood Authority knows it will need to raise most of the system before the next FEMA certification for flood insurance, which will be in a few years, it hopes to save the cost of re-armoring the levees by raising them now high enough to offset the expected subsidence. All it takes is the Corps agreeing not to armor them before they're lifted. 
Let us try, ladies and gentlemen. Let's try to deal with the Army Corps of Engineers. And now... News of the Olympic Movement. Produced by Jim Ebersole, Jr. Well, more Sturmendrang in Boston. Less than a week after pledging a new commitment to transparency... The organizers of Boston's bid for the 2024 Summer Olympics are refusing to make public key documents outlining the political and budget support needed to land the games. The Boston Business Journal requested that Boston 2024, the uh, committee making the bid for the games, share the documents in question after learning the group's formal proposal to host the games included six separate chapters, two of which have never been made available to the public in unredacted form. If they're not doing anything wrong, what do they have to hide? The chapters, entitled, quote, Political Support and Bid Budget, unquote, were part of the city's successful pitch to represent the U.S. Olympic Committee. The Boston Business Journal first disclosed details concerning the formal bid proposal. Last week, they received the first four chapters of the organization's so-called bid book through a public records request. Those chapters included controversial information, namely calls for public financing and the creation of a public authority to acquire properties from private landowners. That material was redacted from a similar version of the bid book provided to the public in January. It's, it's, uh, it's an onion, and you have to peel it. Meanwhile, Rio de Janeiro's preparations for next year's Olympic Games were marred this week by a bloody confrontation between police and residents. They were resisting. The residents were attempts to forcibly remove them from their homes near the site of the new Olympic Stadium. At least six people were wounded in the face-off in a community on the edge of the Olympic Park. 90% of the residents have already moved after being offered financial compensation, but the remaining holdouts are adamant they don't want to give up their homes of many years for a mega event that that will last about two weeks. These clashes this week were the first attempt to forcibly relocate them, following a decree in March by the mayor that called for their urgent removal so the Olympic host city can complete its preparations on time. Residents posted images on their Facebook page of the injuries sustained on their side. The holdouts have protested before against what they believe are unjustified and unnecessary demolition plans. They believe they're being evicted so developers can make higher profits once the games are finished. Quote, it's strange we're being forced out of our homes in the name of public works, yet this is a private investment, said Jane Nascimento de Oliveira. The City Hall says all residents have been offered compensation and alternative housing at a newly built condominium. Wouldn't you like to live there? It's about a kilometer away. You can see your home from there. The mayor originally said he would not order forced relocations. But you know, 
the Olympics. It's a movement. And we all need one. Every day. Follow the dollar. Sometime back on this broadcast, our friend Eve Smith was here to discuss the issue of the fees that private equity funds charge their investors, so-called limited partners in the funds, many of which are public employee pension funds. Now we have this. Even as Chris Christie pushed to cut benefits to retired New Jersey firefighters, teachers, and other state workers saying there simply isn't sufficient money in the pension fund, his administration is concealing how millions of those pension fund dollars are spent, according to International Business Times. The official's testimony to state lawmakers appeared to prove the state's fees to private equity firms in which the state's pension funds had invested were well below those of other states. In fact, the Christie administration's pension analysis obtained through an open records request by International Business Times emitted so-called performance fees that the state pays to Wall Street. These fees which give financial firms a cut of the state's investment gains, now total hundreds of millions of dollars a year. A Christie administration presentation for state pension trustees, also obtained by IB Times, similarly omitted these performance fees. Oh, by the way, some of the managers of these private equity funds were major campaign contributors to Governor Christie. And from The Intercept, at least one small slice of the American public looks forward to the nonstop political ads set to inundate viewers during this election cycle. Eighteen months of it, those that small slice of the American public, media executives and their investors. Peter Ligori, chief executive of the Tribune Company, formerly head of Fox, said earlier this month, actually last month, that the next presidential campaign presents, quote, enormous opportunity, unquote, for advertising sales. Speaking at a conference hosted by J.P. Morgan Chase. Wouldn't you like to go to those conferences? Ligori, who owns, whose company owns television stations, referred to super PAC spending as a key factor for why he thinks Tribune Company political advertising revenue will racket from $115 million last time around to $200 million for this cycle. Vince Sedusky, the chief executive of Media General, parent company of 71 television stations, told investors a couple months ago his company is positioned to benefit from unlimited campaign spending thanks to the Supreme Court. In 2012, Les Moonves, president and chief executive of CBS, said super PACs may be bad for America, but they're very good for CBS. In a February investor call this year, Moonves predicted strong growth with the help of political spending, particularly on television. The New York Times and Bloomberg chronicled the rising political revenue to broadcast media companies. A single 
TV station in Columbus, Ohio, grossed about $50 million in advertising in 2012, of which at least $20 million was campaign spending, according to the Times. The 2016 campaign cycle is expected to be the first time digital advertising alone will reach $1 billion. Media watchdog groups worry that news outlets won't investigate the special interests buying ads if their companies become dependent upon the same groups for revenue. <laughs> oh, please. We're talking about journalism. Reliance on political ad spending has already led some media interests to fight against reforms designed to make the American election system cleaner. Really? You think? For nearly two de- decades, the National Association of Broadcasters has fought bipartisan efforts to provide free airtime to candidates. Such an idea was proposed by President Bill Clinton. Remember him? In a 2002 interview on CNN, John McCain complained the NAB is the most powerful lobby in Washington because these are the people that shape the opinion to a large degree of the people who are your constituents. Media companies have attempted in recent years to obstruct FCC rules during the Obama administration to digitize mandatory forms revealing information about political ad buys. According to ProPublica, among the companies objecting to that minor reform were NBC Universal and News Corp. I'm sorry, Nice Corp. In spite of declining television advertising revenue expected this year, because who's watching? Credit rating agencies recently have given broadcast companies a sunny two-year outlook. The reason, according to Moody's senior credit officer, talking to the New York, to the Los Angeles Times, is that political ad spending is expected to boom next year. Political advertising revenue defies gravity, said the Moody's senior credit officer. Yeah, that's credit where credit is due. I um, pointed out last week, I think it was, that the consultants, I'm sorry, the strategists, who call for advertising to be purchased on behalf of their candidates get a um, 15% commission on all the time they buy, which is a an incentive to buy more time. It's a system. Yeah. 
once said a prayer in their room, a prayer in their room that they hope will be heard. And if a minor storm will quit too soon, just sleep until noon. Ain't that a little absurd? You gotta walk on water so you can start brand new. Walk through fire, that's what you gotta do when you wanna fall to pieces and you're coming unglued. You just keep walking on water until you make it through. Spark the own burning truth, and everybody's got a scar on their heart. A million false starts that they want to undo. You gotta walk on water so you can start brand new. Walk through fire, that's what you gotta do when you want to fall to pieces and you're coming unglued. You just keep walking on water. You make it through. From the home of the homeless, this is Le Show. And now, ladies and gentlemen, news from outside the bubble. You know, there's this idea that Canada is so nice. That idea will have to be reconsidered in the light of this story from The Guardian. Sue Caribou, it's a um, woman, a um, Aboriginal Canadian. Yes, they have those. She gets pneumonia about once a year. Like clockwork, as a matter of fact, the recurring illness stems from her childhood years at one of Canada's residential schools. Quote, I was thrown into a cold shower every night, sometimes after being raped, she said. She was snatched from her parents' house in 1972 by the state-funded church-run Indian residential school system that brutally attempted to assimilate native children for over a century in Canada. This is Canada, eh? Not even any Tim Hortons for her. She was only seven years old. We had to stand like soldiers while singing the national anthem, otherwise we would be beaten up, she recalled. She said Catholic mission, Catholic missionaries, really? Physically and sexually abused her until 1979. In the province of Manitoba, she said she was called a dog, was forced to eat rotten vegetables, and was forbidden to speak her native language, Cree. Her voice and that of 150,000 other residential school pupils was finally heard across Canada this week. 
as the country faced one of the darkest chapters in its history. The head of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission set up to examine the school system's legacy. Didn't mince his words when he unveiled his report. Quote, Canada clearly participated in a period of cultural genocide, according to Justice Murray Sinclair. Although Prime Minister Harper apologized for the school system in 2008, the Catholic Church did in 2009, his government has always denied that it was a form of genocide. As many as 6,000 children died in residential institutions during the period from 1876 to 1996. The accurate figure could be much higher, however, since the government stopped recording Aboriginal students' deaths in 1920 in light of the alarming statistics. Caribou believes dozens of pupils perished at the institution where she was detained. Remains, she says, were found all over the fields. Many of my friends committed suicide after their release. Justice Sinclair, the second Aboriginal judge to be appointed in Canada, made clear the connection between the residential schools and the social ills plaguing what, are, what they call up there the First Nations today. Said Caribou, I didn't learn anything at the school except the Our Father Prayer and the National Anthem. Prime Minister Harper didn't utter a word while he attended the closing ceremony of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, nor did he announce any measures that would further reconciliation for survivors. If Stephen Harper's apology for residential schools is not followed by actions, it will prove to be meaningless, says the Chief of the Assembly of First Nations. From The Guardian, the downfall of Sepp Blatter, the former head, well, he's still in office for a while longer, of FIFA, the international umbrella organization of world soccer, in the midst of a widening corruption scandal. Uh, That downfall, that resignation this week, has sparked an avalanche of claims about major decisions taken by FIFA in recent years. The German newspaper Die Zeit reported this week that the then-Chancellor Gerhard Schröder supplied arms to Saudi Arabia in return for support for Germany's World Cup bid, in which it defeated South Africa in controversial circumstances in the final round. The claims allege that the German government lifted arms restrictions days before the vote in order to make the shipment and help swing the vote of our freedom-loving friend Saudi Arabia to Germany. This uh, would suggest the votes for about the last five World Cup tournaments are now under scrutiny. Brazilian authorities and the FBI are also looking into the contract signed for the 2014 World Cup. And speaking of our freedom-loving friends in Saudi Arabia, that nation has barred fashion shows and warned designers and companies against promoting their products through such events. The Saudi Council of Chambers issued the ban, claiming fashion shows were being held without the proper licenses. There's been negligence in the past few months from the Chambers of Commerce in the Kingdom, Multiple fashion shows were organized without licensing, and the Chambers of Commerce did not bother to issue violations against the organizers. The new ban has come as a blow to models in the country. Modeling is a new field to our culture, but the audience was very welcoming to our efforts as models in the show. That was the comment of a male model to the Saudi Gazette. In the conservative kingdom, it is mainly men who take to the ramp, The ban will affect their employment, 
Saudi models started as a hobby, but we turned it into a profession after we saw the high demand in the industry, according to another Saudi male model. No idea, no word here, whether they are uh, wearing men's clothing. Our freedom-loving friends in Saudi Arabia. News of uh, from outside the bubble, ladies and gentlemen, a copyrighted feature of this broadcast. And now, another, another uh, stanza of the revolving door waltz. The Securities and Exchange Commission confirmed this week that it has hired as its new chief of staff for the regulatory agency that regulates stockbrokers and such. Its new chief of staff, a former managing director of Goldman Sachs, Chairman Mary Jo White hired Andrew Buddy Donahue to become chief of staff of the agency in, in charge of protecting investors. We have a buddy. He'll serve as a senior advisor to Chairman Mary Jo White on policy management and regulatory issues. Most recently, he worked as a managing director and associate general counsel at Goldman Sachs. Previously, before that, he was at the SEC, just going back and forth. White said Donahue's a seasoned professional. His background will be especially useful as the commission approaches new rules for risk management. Wall Street critics were livid that yet another high-ranking Goldman Sachs leader got a top government position. Donahue worked at the SEC at a time when the regulator had a soft touch before the 2008 financial crisis. Several insider accounts of the early days of the crisis were critical of then-chief of the SEC, Christopher Cox, for whom Donahue worked. It's he's just he don't blame him. He's just dancing to the revolving door waltz, ladies and gentlemen. The um, Folks at ProPublica, oh, I Obamaized them. The people at ProPublica and the New York Times this week came out with a story that despite the Obama administration's protestations that they are backing down from the prevalence of NSA surveillance, the bulk collection of our telephone metadata, as a result of, among other things, the sunsetting of Section 215 of the Patriot Act. In fact, the Justice Department under Eric Holder at the Obama administration in 2012 authored two secret opinions authorizing new secret surveillance of Internet communication in an attempt to try to uh, track down hackers supposedly foreign terroristic style hackers but in in fact some of the people they've targeted have had no foreign connections or have no connections to terrorism they're just hackers it's nutty isn't it kind of traditional values nutty
So, <laughs> the uptake of the pesticide residue in the soil moves it through the plant's entire respiratory system. That's this infographic? It's a diagram, but yes. <laughs> and that's why, even if it's at very low dose, mm-hmm. lower than our government says can possibly hurt us, uh-huh. it can hurt us. <laughs> and these, they are just timelines for organic food distribution by U.S. County over the last 25 years, color-coded by state. That's a quick five minutes, and you've got that nailed. Cool. Uh, Mom, can I ask you something? Oh, sure, honey. I always take questions at the end of this presentation. I know. But my question is, can you help me with my homework now? Sorry, honey. Sometimes I just get a little carried away with honing my campaigning skills, just in case I decide in a couple of years to become... Hillary 2.0. Yeah, that would be great. Bringing dates home to the White House. It didn't hurt Chelsea Clinton. (laughs) But maybe I don't want to end up with pity jobs doing puff pieces with Stone Phillips. Wow, you're upset about something, aren't you, honey? Kinda. Something to do with Daddy? Kinda. Something your friends at school were saying about Daddy? Really, kind of. Okay, look, let's make a little deal. Mm-hmm. We'll do your homework, and then we'll... I really need to talk about it now. Okay. Want a smoothie first? No. no. You remember... You remember Kwame Gold? That's your half-black, half-Jewish friend? You're thinking of Lumumba Schwartz. Mm. Kwame's the kid with the very lefty, rich Swedish parents. Got it. What about him? Is he cute? (sighs) He was traumaing me the other day because Daddy said we were cutting back on secret surveillance Mm -hmm. and now the New York Times says he's got a new secret program to do even more surveillance. Uh Kwame is part of the post-9-11 generation that's concerned about privacy. At least that's what it says on his Facebook profile. Okay, honey. First of all, mm-hmm. if it isn't secret, it can't be surveillance. It's just looking. <sighs> I know, that's just my lawyer head talking, mm-hmm. but... Hey, Kitten. Hi, Daddy. Dear, Kitten has a... I know what my kitten has. I heard her. You were listening outside the door? <laughs> oh, no, sweetie. I was in my office, monitoring the NSA tap. I... When I heard your concern, I sprinted up here. Oh, well, I hope you weren't still wearing your golf shoes. The cleats tear up the carpeting something fierce. Nope. As you can see, I'm rocking my Kyries. So, Cupcake, Mm -hmm. I hear you think I'm not being as transparent as I should be about our non-transparent activities? Kind of. Wasn't this Kwame kid the same one who spilled the instant muesli on your iPad? I... I think he was just trying to get my attention. And it was just my mini iPad. My regular one's fine. Well, that's great. But listen here, Sugar Beet. Mm-hmm. Let's just imagine for a moment that somebody had spilled virtual muesli in your regular iPad. Virtual muesli? I'm waxing metaphorical. <laughs> what I mean is, your iPad was hacked. Wouldn't you like to know if it was Kwame or not? Well, sure. And, and and how could you know for sure? 
I guess by asking him. And what if he didn't feel like telling the truth? Well, I guess I could just ask to look at the school server log for that day and then parse all the handshakes to my IP address looking for spoofing. Yes, he could do that. <laughs> but what if the school didn't want to grant you that kind of access? Well, I mean, I am the president's daughter. Oh, you mean you'd use your proximity to the leader of the free world to bend the rules for the sake of your own privacy and security? Is is that what the president's daughter is telling me? Kinda. And if you did that, mm -hmm. would you want the whole school to know about it? Not really. But, Daddy, in your example, I never said I wasn't going to go look at the school server, but... Isn't that what you did, tell everybody that you were cutting back on secret... on surveillance? And then authorizing lots more? Kind of. But, Kitten, you know who values his privacy just as much as your friend Kwame does? Maybe even a little bit more? Lumumba Schwartz? <sighs> nope. Uncle Sam. You mean... The mythical anthropomorphosis of the initials of the United States? Yes, him. He's got secrets just like you do, and if he's afraid that someone's going to put virtual muesli in his iPad, he's got some folks working for him almost as close to the president as you are. I guess I know what Kwame's problem is now. His parents aren't really Swedish? No, he doesn't realize... Just how progressive my dad really is. Oh, sweetheart. You're progressive, too. Now, news of our friend the Atom. Japan did not do enough to protect the Fuk nuclear plant, despite authorities being aware of threats to the facility from earthquakes and tsunamis. This according to the International Atomic Energy Agency, that's all. The UN nuclear watchdog also criticized Tokyo Electric Power, TEPCO, the plant's operator, for not acting on the warnings. The IAEA said in its final report on the disaster that a new method applied between 2007 and 2009 had predicted a big quake off the coast of Fuk that could lead to a tsunami hitting the facility. The plant had some weaknesses which were not fully evaluated by a probabilistic safety assessment as recommended by the safety standards, said the report. TEPCO did not take the necessary precautions despite the analysis, said the IAEA. TEPCO did not take interim compensatory measures in response to these increased estimates of tsunami height, nor did the Japanese regulator required TEPCO to act promptly on these results, according to a version of the report in the Japan Times. Prior to the accident, there was not sufficient consideration of low-probability, high-consequence external events, which remained undetected. This was because the basic assumption in Japan reinforced over many decades that the robustness of the technical design of the nuclear plants would provide sufficient protection against postulated risks. 
TEPCO also failed to implement sufficient safety assessment measures and lacked protection against tsunami-caused flooding, according to the IAEA. By the way, Addie the Atom is uh, off in rehab this week. Japan's nuclear watchdog itself had harsh words for TEPCO over its failure to implement a comprehensive strategy to plug leaks of contaminated water at Fuk. TEPCO has failed to manage contaminated water properly, said the chairman of the Nuclear Regulation Authority. It lacks a strategic approach to addressing the contaminated water issue, he said. This followed the recent revelation that an estimated 7 to 15 tons of highly radioactive water leaked from a hose that was used to transfer contaminated water from storage tanks to a treatment facility. Leak was discovered at the end of last month. The incident was just the latest in a spate of similar mishaps that have plagued the plant. TEPCO announced the beginning of this month that the escaped water contained 1.1 million becquerels of beta-ray-emitting radioactive materials per liter. The water made its way to the sea through a ditch, according to the company. That's high-tech. The leak. Speaking of high-tech, listen to this. The leak likely occurred because of the condition of the hose between the tank and the treatment facility. The hose had deteriorated to the part in the part where the water escaped. The hose was bent at a far sharper angle than is supposed to be allowed under regulations. TEPCO said it didn't replace the hose with a more durable one, even though it was aware of the potential danger that could result from the aging of the hose. It had not checked the hose since installing it two and a half years ago, said the uh, regulator. TEPCO should be held deeply responsible. Ooh. And cold. TEPCO had failed to notify the authorities before the leak that the tanks holding water that was scheduled for treatment including included highly contaminated water. That heavy contamination resulting from tons of groundwater making contact with melted nuclear fuel in the reactor buildings. So the, that was TEPCO's little secret, too. A year ago, San Onofre's operators, this is a nuclear plant south of Los Angeles, between Los Angeles and San Diego, San Onofre's operators argued that with the nuclear plant now shut down because of premature wear in some new parts, and with nuclear fuel no longer in the reactors, its emergency plan should be less stringent. This week, the Nuclear Regulatory Commission agreed. Spent nuclear fuel remains on site at San Onofre, just 2,668 assemblies and spent fuel pools and 1,200 in dry storage, according to Southern California Edison, which is the majority owner. Edison, though, has plans to bury the fuel in underground concrete until the federal government figures out what to do with it. Back to Japan and TEPCO. They're using 1,300 containers to store radioactive water at the plant site, in a meeting with a study group from the regulator, TEPCO said out of the 278 containers examined so far, 26 had some sort of leaks. The company said none of the contaminated water had escaped. It noted that the leaks were likely caused by hydrogen and other gases accumulating in sediment at the bottom of the containers. A regulatory official in Japan t- told a Japanese newspaper the accumulating hydrogen is... Potentially dangerous. Clean, cheap, safe. Too potentially dangerous to meet her, our friend the Atom. And quickly now, some apologies of the week. Quickly now, Paul. 
so sorry. Internet giant Google has apologized after the Indian Prime Minister Narendra Modi's photos started appearing in the image search results for, quote, top 10 criminals. We apologize for any confusion or misunderstanding this has caused, said a Google, Google statement. Modi figures prominently in the search alongside images of terrorists, murderers, and dictators. Other world leaders on the list include former U.S. President George Bush and Muammar Gaddafi. Actor Drake Bell, one half of Drake and Josh, a tweener comedy, got some negative attention this week for a tweet he sent out about Caitlyn Jenner. I sincerely apologize for my thoughtless and sensitive remarks. I in no way meant to hurt or demean those going through a similar journey. Although my comments were made in innocence, I deeply regret the negative effect they've had on many. Major League Baseball apologized to the Kansas City Royals this week for a breakdown in its replay process during a crucial moment in a 2-1 loss to the Cleveland Indians. Petco apologized this week for the death of a dog who was left in a dryer too long during a grooming appointment. The company fired the workers involved in the incident and has removed the type of dryer used in the case. Colby was a two-year-old golden retriever and died of possible heat stroke after being left in a drying unit for too long at a Petco store. Rabbi Jonathan Rosenblatt of New York City asserted his innocence in his first public comment since the publication of a New York Times article about his habit of inviting young males to join him for naked heart-to-heart talks in the sauna. In a letter sent to congregants of his Orthodox synagogue, Rosenblatt said he never did anything lawful, doesn't agree with the accusations and attacks against him, and regrets if his conduct inadvertently offended anyone. He didn't acknowledge any inappropriate behavior. If any of you feel that my behavior, even if innocent, was inappropriate, I apologize to those affected. A rabbinical if-pology. In a televised address entitled The Gloves Are Off, former FIFA Vice President Jack Warner, not the one with the brothers, said he told his lawyers to contact law enforcement. He has proof that FIFA and its leader, Sepp Blatter, influenced Trinidad's election in 2010. Warner posted bail after being arrested over U.S. bribery charges last week. Says he has deep knowledge about financial practices of soccer's world body, which faces this widening corruption scandal. I will no longer keep secrets for them who now seek to actively destroy the country in which I live, Warner said, adding, the international image of his native Trinidad is under attack. I apologize, he said to the people of Trinidad and Tobago, for not disclosing my knowledge of these matters before. The flight attendant who allegedly denied an unopened can of Diet Coke to the Northwestern University Muslim chaplain, Tahera Ahmad, because, quote, she may use it as a weapon, will no longer serve United Airlines customers. United reported. Spokesperson for the airline apologized for the incident in a statement, writing the United does not tolerate behavior that is discriminatory or that appears to be discriminatory against our customers or employees. We're in the process of reaching out to Ms. Ahmad to provide a formal apology, said a representative for Republic Airways, a partner of United, that ran the shuttle flight. When Ahmad protested that she wasn't given a, an unopened can of Diet Coke when her seatmate was given an unopened can of beer, and she looked to the other passengers for support, one man yelled, You Muslim, you need to shut the F up, according to her posting at Facebook. And Senator Ted Cruz apologized Wednesday after making a joke at the expense of Vice President Biden, whose son died over the weekend. Last weekend, Cruz, speaking Michigan, trotted out an old line of his, Joe Biden, you know what the nice thing is? You don't even need a punchline. I promise you it works. At the next party you're at, just walk up to someone and say, Vice President Joe Biden, and just close your mouth. They will crack up laughing. 
Cruz subsequently issued an apology. It was a mistake to use an old joke about Joe Biden during his time of grief, and I sincerely apologize. The Michigan head of the Cruz campaign said, Timing could have been better. Unquote. Also, probably delivery. The Apologies of the Week, ladies and gentlemen, a copyrighted feature of this broadcast. Ladies and gentlemen, that's going to conclude this week's edition of the show. The program returns next week at the same time over these same stations over NPR worldwide throughout Europe. The U.S. and 440 cable system in Japan, around the world through the facilities of the American Forces Network up and down the east coast of North America via the shortwave giant WBCQ, the planet on the Mighty 104 in Berlin, around the world via the Internet at two different locations, live and archive whenever you want at harryshearer.com and kcsn.org. Available for your smartphone through Stitcher.com and available as a free podcast through SoundCloud, Sideshow Network, iTunes, and TuneIn.com. A typical show chapeau to the San Diego, Pittsburgh, Chicago, and Exile and Hawaii desks. Thanks to Pam Halstead, as always, and to Jenny Lawson at WWNO New Orleans for help with today's broadcast. The email address for this program and the playlist of the music heard here on and Cars I Talk t-shirts, all available at HarryShare.com. And me, I'm on the Twitter at the Harry Shearer. The show comes to you from Century of Progress Productions and originates through the facilities of WWNO New Orleans' flagship station of the Change is Easy Radio Network. <laughs>